I want to talk with you quickly about cheeseburgers. Whether you're proud of it or not, I think we could all recall a moment where we're sitting in that drive through line at our fast food restaurant of choice, waiting for that holy moment when that person reaches their arms out the window and places in your hands that warm, greasy cheeseburger, right? And when you ordered that cheeseburger at that little intercom thing a few feet back, you expected something very specific to be given to you, right? There's certain ingredients that need to be there. For a cheeseburger to be a cheeseburger, it has to have a few very specific things. For starters, probably a piece of meat, maybe a piece of cheese, I would argue a bun. Um, without any of those things, you don't have a cheeseburger. Last week, we began a new sermon series called Glimpses of the Kingdom, and that word kingdom is going to be an important one for us next few weeks, few months, really, as we work our way through the book of Luke and Acts. And a kingdom, much like our beloved cheeseburger, it has a few necessary ingredients. If a kingdom is really going to be a kingdom, you expect it to have a few very specific things. So... Are there any guesses what I would say is the number one ingredient of a kingdom? For a kingdom to be a kingdom, what do you think I'd say is the number one thing it has to have? A king. Great job. A plus. Way to go, class. Um, Any legitimate kingdom needs a king. And that's where this morning's passage is going to lead us. But I want to first kind of give a quick recap of what we've covered so far in the book of Luke. Um, both how we uh, studied it in Advent and then also last week Lane started this new series. So chapters one and two consist mostly of the story surrounding Jesus' birth, which many of us would be familiar with. There's the angel who announces the birth of John the Baptist and also announces about Jesus' birth. And of course, there's the actual birth of Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Lane preached on kind of chapters two and three, which have these four encounters with Jesus, with the child Jesus, that kind of continue to affirm him as the Messiah, even after his birth. Uh, There's two moments where these faithful, devout Israelites, Simeon and Anna, have moments of encounter with this child, where it's Jesus, where the Spirit reveals to them that, yes, this is the Messiah that your people have been waiting for. This is the one. Those are the first two stories. Third, we have Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple, and he kind of has this moment where he abandons his family and friends to ask questions of, to share with the religious leaders, and everyone is kind of amazed at this moment with this boy Jesus. And then fourth, we had the ministry of John the Baptist, who kind of served as a voice preparing for Jesus to come begin his ministry, and John was announcing that this is the Messiah who has come. And so... From a zoomed out view like this, we can see that Luke is very purposeful in communicating with his readers. He wants to make it crystal clear that this character, Jesus, is the Messiah. This is the one. And so this morning's passage from Luke chapter 4 is really going to do more of the same, confirm Jesus' identity and his mission but we'll actually get to hear from Jesus himself. Because up to this point in the book of Luke, we've heard a lot about Jesus, but haven't actually heard from him too much. So I want to read kind of the first half of today's passage, and then we'll get to the rest later, starting Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, and I'll read through verse 21. 
And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so we have this scene of Jesus in his hometown synagogue, which I have a picture of it, looked a little something like this. Very simple, not as ornate really as I, as I would have thought, just a simple room with some benches for seating, kind of a podium in the middle for the teacher to speak from. And as rabbis regularly did, Jesus opened the scroll and read these beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah, who long ago painted this picture of a Messiah who would one day come. And we can't say for sure, but my guess is that this isn't the first time that a rabbi has read these words in this setting to kind of stir the hope, the imagination of these Jewish listeners who were longing for a day when they would be rescued from Babylonian or from Assyrian, now kind of Roman rule, they dreamed of a leader who would come and bring them peace, bring them prosperity. We can be sure, though, that Jesus' readings of these words were very different because he closed the scroll that he read from, he sat down, and kind of synagogue like etiquette or protocol was that the teacher would stand to read the scripture and then they would sit down to kind of give like the explanation of that scripture. So you can imagine Jesus sits down and he starts explaining what this means. And he says, today this scripture is coming true. Today is the day when the prophet's words about a Messiah are fulfilled. And true to what Luke has been doing so far, Jesus announces himself as the Messiah. He is God's chosen one who will rescue, who will redeem Israel. And what does Jesus say is his mission as God's chosen one? He says the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him, has kind of empowered him to, quote, proclaim good news, to proclaim good news. Before Jesus does anything else or says anything else in his ministry, that's what he came to do, to share good news. We could do a lot with just that idea that the first and foremost description of Jesus' ministry was that he came to give good news. And so today, as we think about life today, and envisioning how we might share the story of God with non-believers, are we prepared to begin that story with good news? Or do, do we just kind of, by default, go to sharing bad news? Like, we're all sinners, or the world is, is a messed up place, true things but maybe not good news. And so a question that I would have you ponder is what does it look like to begin and end really, but especially begin telling God's story with good news? What would that look like? I'm not gonna answer it for you here, it's something to leave with, 
Um, or think about our involvement maybe in the local community, places where you volunteer, where you serve, where you um, just kind of exist in friend groups outside of the church. Do people look forward to our presence, Christians' presence, because they know it will be good for the community? Do they hope that we are in those spaces because they know we'll bring something good? Or do they kind of dread that we're going to be there because we're difficult to work with or we come with our agendas? And so another question, again, that I won't answer, but for you to take with you. How can we be good, keyword good, good news to our neighbors, our schools, our coworkers? That phrase, good news, is not unique to Jesus. As you know, he is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And when Isaiah used that phrase, uh, he uses it a few times throughout his book. And when he does, he always has kind of royal themes in mind. In Isaiah chapter 52, he says, Isaiah says this to the Israelites, who at the time are kind of being oppressed by these big, bad Assyrians. He says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And so the good news that Isaiah shares with Israel is that their king, who is God, uh, reigns. Despite their seeming downfall, their defeat, their kind of dire situation, their king, Israel's king, not the king of the Assyrians or the king of the Babylonians, reigns. And so when Jesus comes and says that he has come to proclaim good news, and he does that by quoting the prophet Isaiah, he is without a doubt invoking that same sort of royal imagery. Jesus' announcement to the Jewish people is that your king reigns, and I am that king. I am here to inaugurate, to enact a new rule, a new reign. Remember our cheeseburger. If there is a king, that's a clue that there is a kingdom. We have the most important ingredient. And so the rest of today's passage, the rest of the book of Luke, really all four of the Gospels are portraits and kind of demonstrations of what that kingdom is like. Because every kingdom has its own personality, its own flavor, its own kind of value system. And so Jesus' mission is to reveal the uniqueness and reveal the beauty of God's kingdom. And he jumps right into doing so by naming all of the people who, to whom the good news will kind of be the most good news, right? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. It's not the most put-together, royal, respected bunch of people, right? In a world where uh, Jesus, and Jesus' world where money and sex and power were the things that kind of earned you identity and status, really not too different from our world today, to be honest. Jesus came announcing a kingdom that was good news for the poor, for the hated, and for the powerless. And of course, in one sense, that tells us about the character of God, that King Jesus is not someone who is going to use his power to manipulate or to belittle people, but who uses his power to serve and empower others who are most in need of grace and encouragement and strength. But it also tells us about the kind of nat the nature of relationship with God, what it really looks like to genuinely rely on God. I want to read a little quote here about what it might look like to relate to God as someone who is maybe on the margins. 
The gospel message is more suited to those who are poor and already live in a dependent context. Independent, well-to-do people often have a false sense of security about life, as if it is really within their control. Our culture tells people to take control of their own lives, as if they can grab life by the reins and steer their own way. The poor, however, and poor, as Jesus uses, is actually a, a really broad term. It's not just financially poor. It means people who are poor in their relationships with others, poor in their health. The poor, however, live under no such delusions and are usually better prepared to turn toward God. So the reality is that most of us are probably those independent, well-to-do people, right? And so what, do, what are we to do when Jesus' announcement isn't, we're not really the target audience of this announcement. What do we make of that? Well, I don't think that God would encourage us to become prisoners or to become pressed or to become sick just for the sake of learning a lesson. But I definitely think he would advocate for maybe adopting some of the posture of people who are in those situations, someone who is utterly dependent on a word of good news that they can't bring about themselves, someone who doesn't have the resources or the, their, the ability to kind of improve their life through money or recreation or relationships, whatever we might use to do that. What could we learn from that person's dependence on God? And so another question that I won't answer for you, what would it look like to adopt a posture of true dependence on God? As we think about those people that Jesus came first and foremost to announce this good news to, what could that, type, that person's life teach us about relying and depending on God? One final thought about this announcement that I want us to consider before we kind of move on to the second half is that Jesus, both at the start of today's passage and at the very end, says that he has come to proclaim good news, right? I've said that over and over again. In verse 18, we read it. Then again, down in verse 43, he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. That's kind of his summary statement. But sandwiched in between those two proclamations at the start and end of today's passage are a, a couple stories we're not going to have time for today, but are demonstrations of Jesus doing exactly the thing that he said he came to do. He brings freedom to a man who is possessed by a demon. He heals Simon's mother-in-law of this deadly fever and other various kinds of sicknesses, it says. The following chapters in Luke show Jesus doing more of the same, granting freedom, restoring sight to the blind, setting the oppressed free. And so all of this means that this good news, which is the same phrase that we get the word gospel, when we say the gospel, it comes from that same, same word for good news. It's not primarily about something that happens to us when we die. For Jesus and for those who first heard his message, the good news was actually something a lot more tangible and present than just simply, oh, here's a place you get to go when you die. The good news was that there was a king who was inaugurating his reign in the here and now, in our world that we live in, and that reign will bring life and freedom and peace to those who are most in need of it. Jesus didn't teach nearly as much about going from earth to heaven as he did about heaven 
coming to earth. This is what God's kingdom was about, the fullness and the peace of heaven invading the earth that we live in now and him inviting us to participate in that kingdom. I wanna watch uh, a little video that kind of summarizes everything I just said, says it probably in a better way than I did and also is just kind of visually pleasing. Um, so yeah, I just it's about five minutes. Take it in, let it reinforce some of what I just said, and then we'll go from there. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls, and far out on the hills we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news! And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes, the feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside down kingdom. Now Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, 
this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Okay, so hopefully that was helpful in, at least for me, it's helpful in connecting the whole story of the Bible together, right? Jesus doesn't just come as some random figure who starts this new thing. He is the fulfillment of something that people have been waiting for a long time. And so Jesus' very first followers, life was about trying to wrap their heads around who is this king, what is he like, what is this kingdom like? So there's a lot more that could be said about that. But I want to spend the rest of our time looking at kind of the next chunk of this passage, which is Luke uh, 4, 22 to 30. And before we read the whole thing, I want us to notice what happens at the very start of this passage and then what happens at the very end, because it's very telling as to what's going on in between. So in verse 22, this is right after this announcement of good news, we read, all spoke well of him, so that's those who are listening to Jesus, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? We're gonna talk more about that question they asked, but overall, it's rave reviews, right? Everyone seems to be amazed, loving what Jesus is doing, but then jump down to the end of the passage, verses 28 to 30, and this is what we read. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard, it, heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on the way. So this is a wild change of reputation in just a few verses, right? Jesus utters four sentences, which we're gonna read, and people from his hometown, mind, mind you, are literally on the edge of murdering him. They want to push him off of this cliff. And so whatever Jesus says here obviously touched on some sort of pressure point for Jesus' listeners, and it'll be important for us to kind of understand what he was saying as well. So let me read it for you, verses 22 to 28. All spoke well of him, this is when things were still going well for Jesus, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut 
for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And then, of course, it continues them trying to throw him off the cliff. So what's going on here? Well, first, as the people in the synagogue hear Jesus proclaim all this good news, they ask that question that we heard, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, one, of, one angle of this question could simply be that people were amazed that these words were coming out of someone from such an ordinary family. We have a similar question in the book of John from Nathaniel who asks about Jesus. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? People were just surprised about the normality of Jesus's upbringing, and so they asked these questions. But another angle to this question, I think one that makes a little more sense given what follows, is that the people are thinking something like this. Wait a minute, if this man Jesus is announcing this abundant blessing coming from God, and he's the son of Joseph, who's from our hometown, then Jesus is one of us. We've got a connection. We've got this direct line to the good news. We'll get to be the first recipients of all of this stuff. This is good news for us, right? The people are only thinking about how Jesus' message and announcement is going to benefit them, right? But then Jesus' reference to Elijah, to Elisha, which are kind of obscure references for us, they fly in the face of that thinking. It challenges this assumption that God blesses only his people and that good news is something to be hoarded, something to be protected. For Elijah, I'll just quickly give you kind of a snapshot of what Jesus is referencing. For Elijah, during this time of drought and famine in the land of Israel, when God's own people were, would have been in need of food, in need of water, God used Elijah to care for the needs of this non-Jewish woman from Sidon. God's blessing in this moment extended beyond just the ethnic group of the Israelites. And similarly, with the prophet Elisha, while many of God's own people were suffering from disease and sickness, God used him to bring healing and restoration to this man named Naaman, who was the commander of the enemy army, okay? So, Again, God's goodness not only goes beyond his own people, but is extended to the enemies of his people. And so the straw that broke the camel's back for those people that day in that synagogue, when Jesus' listeners were just beginning to get excited about all the good things in store for them, was when Jesus said, I've actually come for the outsider. I know you want your enemies to be destroyed, but I've come with good news of healing and freedom for all people, for all people. N.T. Wright, he captures all of this in a helpful summary. It's, it's a little long, but I wanna read it to you because it gives a good picture of maybe what the Israelites would have been expecting from Jesus versus what they actually got. So let me read this. Israel's God was rescuing the wrong people. His hearers were, after all, waiting for God to liberate Israel from pagan enemies. In several Jewish texts of the time, we find a longing that God would condemn the wicked nations, would pour out wrath and destruction on them. 
Instead, Jesus is pointing out that when the great prophets, that's Elijah and Elisha, when the great prophets were active, it wasn't Israel who benefited, but only the pagans. Jesus' claim to be reaching out to all people was not what most first century Jews wanted or expected. Unless they could see that this was the time for their God to be gracious, unless they abandoned their futile dreams of a military victory over their national enemies, they would suffer defeat themselves at every level, military, political, and theological. And so as we begin this sermon series called Glimpses of the Kingdom, and we start to get glimpses of God's kingdom as we read through the book of Luke, I think something that's important for us to keep in mind is the way that Jesus' first hearers responded to the kingdom and how that might be insightful for us. If Jesus' very first hearers were taken aback by what Jesus had to say about his mission, about who he was coming for, then perhaps there's something a little jarring or rattling that Jesus would have to share with us. When we think about our natural assumptions or kind of cultural expectations of a God who reigns, maybe there's certain things that come to mind, but perhaps as we glimpse the kingdom through all of these stories, Jesus will start to turn some things upside down. So what I love about the video is it illustrated this kind of upside down nature of God's kingdom. And so one final question that I have for you, again, that I won't answer, what misconceptions might we have about Jesus's mission or about God's character? Now this question is one, I think a little bit unlike the first ones that I asked in that it's gonna require that we ask the Spirit to reveal things to us. The other questions are ones that, honestly, we could just sit down and brainstorm some things. But this, when we think about our own misconceptions, those things need to be revealed to us, right? That's why they're called misconceptions, because we're not aware of them. So I wanna take just a few seconds here, just of quiet, to ask Jesus to reveal something to us. And I'm gonna be honest, nothing monumental will probably happen in the next 30 seconds, but as you go throughout your week, as you ponder God's kingdom, what misconceptions might we have about Jesus, and how might he want to turn things upside down? So I'm just gonna give a few minutes of silence, I'm gonna to pray to end and then we'll sing a worship song. What misconceptions might we have about Jesus' mission or about God's character? Jesus, you know how your message was received long ago when you, you came announcing freedom for the prisoner recovery of sight for the blind, the year of the Lord's favor, you know how people responded and you know that that response was often because of a misunderstanding of, of what you came to do and who you were and we just humbly declare that we are not above those misunderstandings. It's easier for me to look at those people and give them a hard time or condemn them for not understanding, but you know each of us to, in some way or another, have our eyes blinded to who you are, to what you wanna do in our world, what you wanna do in our life. And so I ask that as we begin to glimpse your kingdom in the book of Luke over the next several months, would you 
gently, carefully reveal to us what we need to know, what we need to hear, what we need to see. Jesus, you are king of the heavens and the earth and king of our life, and we want to be faithful members of your kingdom, and that first requires understanding you rightly. So God, we come before you and ask that you would show us who you are, reveal your true self to us, reveal uh, the good news that people were so taken aback by, reveal that in our life today. You announced that you inaugurated your kingdom through good news and you continue to be someone who brings good news to our lives today. So I pray your blessing on those here who are listening, your healing, your favor on them. You have come to give them good news, God. So make us open to that news. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen.